Preface and Chapter One of Daniel Boone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Allison Hester. Daniel Boone by John S. C. Abbott. Preface and Chapter One. Preface. The name of Daniel Boone is a conspicuous one in the annals of our country, and yet there are but few who are familiar with the events of his wonderful career, or who have formed a correct estimate of the character of the man. Many suppose that he was a rough, coarse backwoodsman, almost as savage as the bears he pursued in the chase, or the Indians whose terrors he so perseveringly braved. Instead of this, he was one of the most mild and unboastful of men, feminine as a woman in his tastes and deportment, never uttering a coarse word, never allowing himself in a rude action. He was truly one of nature's gentle men. With all of this instinctive refinement and delicacy, there was a boldness of character which seemed absolutely incapable of experiencing the emotion of fear and surely all the records of chivalry may be searched in vain for a career more full of peril and of wild adventure this narrative reveals a state of society and habitudes of life now rapidly passing into oblivion it is very desirable that the records should be perpetuated that we may know the scenes through which our fathers passed in laying the foundations of this majestic republic it is probable that as the years roll on the events which occurred in the infancy of our nation will be read with ever-increasing interest it is the intention of the publisher of this volume to issue a series of sketches of the prominent men in the early history of our country the next volume will contain the life and adventures of the renowned miles standish the puritan captain john s c abbott fairhaven connecticut Chapter 1. The Discovery and Early Settlement of America The little fleet of three small vessels, with which Columbus left Palos in Spain in search of a new world, had been sixty-seven days at sea. They had traversed nearly three thousand miles of ocean, and yet there was nothing but a wide expanse of waters spread out before them. The despairing crew were loud in their murmurs, demanding that the expedition should be abandoned and that the ships should return to Spain. The morning of the 11th of October, 1492, had come. During the day, Columbus, whose heart had been very heavily oppressed with anxiety, had been cheered by some indications that they were approaching land. Fresh seaweed was occasionally seen and a branch of a shrub with leaves and berries upon it and a piece of wood curiously carved had been picked up. The devout commander was so animated by these indications that he gathered his crew around him and returned heartfelt thanks to God for this prospect that their voyage would prove successful. It was a beautiful night. The moon shone brilliantly and a delicious tropical breeze swept the ocean. At ten o'clock Columbus stood upon the bows of his ship earnestly gazing upon the western horizon, hoping that the long-looked-for land would rise before him. Suddenly, he was startled by the distinct gleam of a torch far off in the distance. For a moment, it beamed forth with a clear and indisputable flame, and then disappeared. The agitation of Columbus no words can describe. 
Was it a meteor? Was it an optical illusion? Was it light from the land? Suddenly, the torch, like a star, again shone forth with a distinct, though faint, gleam. Columbus called some of his companions to his side, and they also saw the light clearly, but again it disappeared. At two o'clock in the morning, a sailor at the lookout on the masthead shouted, Land! 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 In a few moments, all beheld, but a few miles distance from them, the distinct outline of towering mountains piercing the skies. A new world was discovered. Cautiously, the vessels hove to and waited for the light of the morning. The dawn of the day presented to the eyes of Columbus and his companions a spectacle of beauty which the Garden of Eden could hardly have rivaled. It was a morning of the tropics, calm, serene, and lovely. But two miles before them, there emerged from the sea an island of mountains and valleys, luxuriant with every variety of tropical vegetation. The voyagers, weary of gazing for many weeks on the wide waste of waters, were so enchanted with the fairy scene which then met the eye, that they seemed to really believe that they had reached the realms of the blessed. The boats were lowered, and, as they were rowed towards the shore, the scene every moment grew more beautiful. Gigantic trees draped in luxuriance of foliage, hitherto unimagined, rose in the soft valleys and upon the towering hills. In the sheltered groves, screened from the sun, the picturesque dwellings of the natives were thickly clustered. Flowers of every variety of tint bloomed in marvelous profusion. The trees seemed laden with fruits of every kind and in inexhaustible abundance. Thousands of natives crowded the shore, whose graceful forms and exquisitely molded limbs indicated the innocence and simplicity of Eden before the fall. Columbus, richly attired in a scarlet dress, fell upon his knees as he reached the beach, and, with clasped hands and uplifted eyes, gave utterance to the devout feelings which ever inspired him in thanksgiving to God. In recognition of the divine protection, he gave the island the name of San Salvador, or Holy Savior. Though the new world thus discovered was one of the smallest islands of the Caribbean Sea, no conception was then formed of the vast continents of North and South America, stretching out in both directions for many leagues almost to the Arctic and Antarctic Poles. Omitting a description of the wonderful adventures which ensued, we can only mention that two years after this, the southern extremity of the North American continent was discovered by Sebastian Cabot. It was in the spring of the year, and the whole surface of the soil seemed carpeted with the most brilliant flowers. The country consequently received the beautiful name of Florida. It, of course, had no boundaries, for no one knew with certainty whether it were an island, or a continent, or how far its limits might extend. The years rolled on, and gradually exploring excursions crept along the coast toward the north. Various provinces were mapped out with pretty distinct boundaries upon the Atlantic coast, extending indefinitely into the vast and unknown interior. Expeditions from France had entered the St. Lawrence and established settlements in Canada. For a time, the whole Atlantic coast, from its extreme southern point to Canada, was called Florida. In the year 1539, 
Ferdinand de Soto, an unprincipled Spanish warrior, who had obtained renown by the conquest of Peru in South America, fitted out by permission of the King of Spain an expedition of nearly a thousand men to conquer and take possession of that vast and indefinite realm called Florida. We have no space here to enter upon a description of their fiend-like cruelties practiced by these Spaniards. They robbed and enslaved without mercy. In pursuit of gold, they wandered as far north as the present boundary of South Carolina. Then, turning to the west, they traversed the vast region to the Mississippi River. The forests were full of game. The granaries of the simple-hearted natives were well stored with corn. Vast prairies, spreading in all directions around them, waving with grass and blooming with flowers, presented ample forage for the three hundred horses which accompanied the expedition. They were also provided with fierce bloodhounds to hunt down the terrified natives. Thus, invincible and armed with the thunder and lightning of their guns, they swept the country, perpetuating every conceivable outrage upon the helpless natives. After long and unavailing wanderings in search of gold, having lost by sickness and the casualties of such an expedition nearly half their number, the remainder built boats upon the Mississippi, descended that rapid stream five hundred miles to its mouth, and then, skirting the coasts of Texas, finally disappeared on the plains of Mexico. De Soto, the leader of this conquering band, died miserably on the Mississippi and was buried beneath its waves. The whole country, which these adventurers traversed, they found to be quite densely populated with numerous small tribes of natives, each generally wandering within circumscribed limits. Though these tribes spoke different languages, or perhaps different dialects of the same language, they were essentially the same in appearance, manners, and customs. They were of a dark red color, well-formed, and always disposed to receive the pale-faced strangers with kindliness, until exasperated by ill-treatment. They lived in fragile huts called wigwams, so simple in their structure that one could easily be erected in a few hours. These huts were generally formed by setting long and slender poles in the ground, enclosing an area of from 10 to 18 feet in diameter, according to the size of the family. The tops were tied together, leaving a hole for the escape of smoke from the central fire. The sides were thatched with coarse grass, or so covered with the bark of trees, as quite effectually to exclude both wind and rain. There were no windows, light entering only through the almost always open door. The ground floor was covered with dried grass, or the skins of animals, or with the soft and fragrant twigs of some evergreen tree. The inmates, men, women, and children, seated upon these cushions, presented a very attractive and cheerful aspect. Several hundred of these wigwams were frequently clustered upon some soft meadow by the side of a flowing stream, fringed with a gigantic forest, and exhibited a spectacle of picturesque loveliness, quite charming to the beholder. The furniture of these humble abodes was extremely simple. They had no pots or kettles which would stand the fire. They had no knives nor forks, no tables nor chairs. Sharp flints, such as they could find, served for knives, with which, with incredible labor, they sawed down small trees and fashioned their bows and arrows. They had no roads except footpaths through the wilderness, 
which for generations their ancestors had traversed, called trails. They had no beasts of burden, no cows, no flocks, nor herds of any kind. They generally had not even salt, but cured their meat by drying it in the sun. They had no plows, hoes, spades. Consequently, they could only cultivate the lightest soil. With a sharp stick, women loosened the earth, and then, depositing their corn or maize, cultivated it in the rudest manner. These Indians acquired the reputation of being very faithful friends, but very bitter enemies. It was said they never forgot a favor, and never forgave an insult. They were cunning rather than brave. It was seldom that an Indian could be induced to meet a foe in an open hand-to-hand -hand fight, but he would track him down for years hoping to take him unawares, and to brain him with the tomahawk, or pierce his heart with the flint-pointed arrow. About the year 1565, a company of French Protestants repaired to Florida, hoping there to find the liberty to worship God in accordance with their interpretation of the teachings of the Bible. They established quite a flourishing colony, a place which they named St. Mary's, near the coast. This was the first European settlement on the continent of North America. The fanatic Spaniards, learning that Protestants had taken possession of the country, set out an expedition and utterly annihilated the settlement, putting men, women, and children to the sword. Many of these unfortunate Protestants were hung in chains from trees under the inscription, Not as Frenchmen, but as heretics. The blood-stained Spaniards then established themselves at a spot nearby, which they called St. Augustine. A French gentleman of wealth fitted out a well-mannered and well-armed expedition of three ships, attacked the murderers by surprise, and put them to death. Several corpses were suspended from trees under the inscription, Not as Spaniards, but as murderers. There was an understanding among the powers of Europe that any portion of the new world discovered by expeditions from European courts should be recognized as belonging to that court. The Spaniards had taken possession in Florida. Far away, a thousand leagues to the north, the French had entered the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But little was known of the vast region between. A young English gentleman, Sir Walter Raleigh, an earnest Protestant, and one who had fought with the French Protestants in their religious wars, roused by the massacre of his friends in florida applied to the british court to fit out a colony to take possession of the intermediate country he hoped thus to prevent the spanish monarchy and the equally intolerant french court from spreading their principles over the whole continent the protestant queen elizabeth then occupied the throne of great britain raleigh was young rich handsome and marvelously fascinating in his address he became a great favorite of the maiden queen, and she gave him a commission, making him lord of all the continent of North America, between Florida and Canada. The whole of this vast region, without any accurate boundaries, was called Virginia. Several ships were sent to explore the country. They reached the coast of what is now called North Carolina, and the adventurers landed at Roanoke Island. They were charmed with the climate, with the friendliness of the natives, and with the majestic growth of the forest trees, far surpassing anything they had witnessed in the old world. Grapes in rich clusters hung in profusion on the vines, 
and birds of every variety of song and plumage filled the groves the expedition returned to england with such glowing accounts of the realm they had discovered that seven ships were fitted out conveying one hundred and eight men to colonize the island it is quite remarkable that no women accompanied the expedition many of these men were reckless adventurers bitter hostility soon sprang up between them and the indians who at first had received them with the greatest kindness most of these colonists were men unaccustomed to work and who insanely expected that in the new world in some unknown way wealth was to flow in upon them like a flood disheartened homesick and appalled by the hostile attitude which the much oppressed indians were beginning to assume they were all anxious to return home when soon after some ships came bringing them abundant supplies they with one accord abandoned the colony and crowding the vessels returned to england fifteen men however consented to remain to await the arrival of fresh colonists from the mother country sir walter raleigh still undiscouraged in the next year fifteen eighty seven sent out another fleet containing a number of families as emigrants with women and children when they arrived they found roanoke deserted the fifteen men had been murdered by the indians in retaliation for the murder of their chief and several of his warriors by the english with fear and trembling the new settlers decided to remain urging the friends who had accompanied them to hasten back to england with the ships and bring them reinforcements and supplies scarcely had they spread their sails on the return voyage ere war broke out with spain it was three years before another ship crossed the ocean to see what had become of the colony it had utterly disappeared though many attempts were made to ascertain its tragic fate all were unavailing it is probable that many were put to death by the indians and perhaps the children were carried far back into the interior and incorporated into their tribes this bitter disappointment seemed to paralyze the energies of colonization for more than seventy years the carolinas remained a wilderness with no attempt to transfer to them the civilization of the old world still english ships continued occasionally to visit the coast some came to fish some to purchase furs of the indians and some for timber for shipbuilding the stories which these voyagers told on their return kept up an interest in the new world it was indeed an attractive picture which could be truthfully painted the climate was mild genial and salubrious the atmosphere surpassed the far-famed transparency of italian skies the forests were of gigantic growth more picturesquely beautiful than any ever planted by man's hand and they were filled with game the lakes and streams swarmed with fish a wilderness of flowers of every variety of loveliness bloomed over the wide meadows and the broad savannas which the forest had not yet invaded berries and fruits were abundant in many places the soil was surpassingly rich and easily tilled and all this was open without money and without price to the first comer still more than a hundred years elapsed after the discovery of these realms ere any permanent settlement was effected upon them most of the bays harbors and rivers were unexplored and reposed as it were in the solemn silence of eternity from the everglades of florida to the fur-clad hills of nova scotia 
not a settlement of white men could be found. At length, in the year 1607, a number of wealthy gentlemen in London formed a company to make a new attempt for the settlement of America. It was their plan to send out hardy colonists, abundantly provided with arms, tools, and provisions. King James I, who had succeeded his cousin, Queen Elizabeth, granted them a charter, by which, wherever they might effect a landing, they were to be the undisputed lords of a territory, extending a hundred miles along the coast, and running back one hundred miles into the interior. Soon after, a similar grant was conferred upon another association for the region of North Virginia, now called New England. Under the protection of this London company, one hundred and five men, with no women or children, embarked in three small ships for the southern Atlantic coast of North America. Apparently by accident, they entered Chesapeake Bay, where they found a broad and deep stream, which they named after their sovereign, James River. As they ascended this beautiful stream, they were charmed with the loveliness which nature had spread so profusely around them. Upon the northern banks of the river, about fifty miles from its entrance into the bay, they selected a spot for their settlement, which they named Jamestown. Here they commenced cutting down trees and raising their huts. In an enterprise of this kind, muscles inured to work and determined spirits ready to grapple with difficulties are essential. In such labors, the most useless of all beings is the gentleman with soft hands and luxurious habits. Unfortunately, quite a number of pampered sons of wealth had joined the colony. Being indolent, selfish, and dissolute, they could do absolutely nothing for the prosperity of the settlement, but were only an obstacle in the way of its growth. Troubles soon began to multiply, and but for the energies of a remarkable man, Captain John Smith, the colony must have soon perished through anarchy. But even Captain John Smith, with all his commanding powers and love of justice and of law, could not prevent the idle and profligate young men from insulting the natives and robbing them of their corn. With the autumnal rains, sickness came, and many died. The hand of well-organized industry might have raised an ample supply of corn to meet all their wants through the short winter, but this had been neglected, and famine was added to sickness. Captain Smith had so won the confidence of the Indian chieftains that notwithstanding the gross irregularities of his young men, they brought him supplies of corn and game, which they freely gave to the English in their destitution. Captain Smith, having thus provided for the necessities of the greatly diminished colony, set out with a small party of men on an exploring expedition into the interior. He was waylaid by Indians, who, with arrows and tomahawks, speedily put all the men to death, excepting the leader, who was taken captive. There was something in the demeanor of this brave man which overawed them. He showed them his pocket compass, upon which they gazed with wonder. He then told them that if they would send to the fort a leaf from his pocket-book, upon which he had made several marks with his pencil, they would find the next day, at any spot they might designate, a certain number of axes, blankets, and other articles of great value to them. Their curiosity was exceedingly aroused, the paper was sent, and the next day the articles were found as promised. 
the indians looked upon captain smith as a magician and treated him with great respect still the more thoughtful of the natives regarded him as a more formidable foe they could not be blind to the vastly superior power of the english in their majestic ships with their long swords and terrible firearms and all the developments astounding to them of a higher civilization they were very anxious in view of encroachments which might eventually give the english the supremacy in their land powhatan the king of the powerful tribe who had at first been very friendly to the english summoned a council of war of his chieftains and after long deliberation it was decided that captain smith was too powerful a man to be allowed to live and that he must die he was accordingly led out to execution but without any of the ordinary accompaniments of torture his hands were bound behind him he was laid upon the ground and his head was placed upon a stone an indian warrior of herculean strength stood by with a massive club to give the death blow by crushing in the skull just as the fatal stroke was about to descend a beautiful indian girl pocahontas the daughter of the king rushed forward and throwing her arms around the neck of captain smith placed her head upon his the indians regarded this as an indication from the great spirit that the life of captain smith was to be spared and they set their prisoner at liberty who being thus miraculously rescued returned to jamestown by his wisdom captain smith preserved for some time friendly relations with the indians and the colony rapidly increased until there were five hundred europeans assembled at jamestown captain smith being severely wounded by an accidental explosion of gunpowder returned to england for surgical aid the colony thus divested of his vigorous sway speedily lapsed into anarchy the bitter hostility of the indians was aroused and within a few months the colony dwindled away beneath the ravages of sickness famine and the arrows of the indians to but sixty men despair reigned in all hearts and this starving remnant of europeans was preparing to abandon the colony and return to the old world when lord delaware arrived with several ships loaded with provisions and with a reinforcement of hardy laborers most of the idle and profligate young men who had brought such calamity upon the colony had died those who remained took fresh courage and affairs began to be more prosperous the organization of the colony had thus far been affected with very little regard to the wants of human nature there were no women there without the honored wife there cannot be the happy home and without the home there can be no contentment to herd together five hundred men upon the banks of a foreign stream three thousand miles from their native land without women and children and to expect them to lay the foundation of a happy and prosperous colony seems almost unpardonable folly immigrants began to arrive with their families and in the year 1620, one hundred and fifty poor but virtuous young women were induced to join the company. Each young man who came received one hundred acres of land. Eagerly these young planters, in short courtship, selected wives from such of these women as they could induce to listen to them. Each man paid one hundred and fifty pounds of tobacco to defray the expenses of his wife's voyage. But the wickedness of man will everywhere and under all circumstances make fearful development of its power 
Many desperadoes joined the colony. The poor Indians, with no weapons of war but arrows, clubs, and stone tomahawks, were quite at the mercy of the English with their keen swords and death-dealing muskets. Fifteen Europeans could easily drive several hundred Indians in panic over the plains. Unprincipled men perpetuated the grossest outrages upon the families of the Indians, often insulting the proudest chiefs. The colonists were taking up lands in all directions. Before their unerring rifles, game was rapidly disappearing. The Indians became fully awake to their danger. The chiefs met in council, and a conspiracy was formed to put, at an appointed hour, all the English to death, every man, woman, and child. Every house was marked. Two or three Indians were appointed to make the massacre sure in each dwelling. They were to spread over the settlement, enter the widely scattered log huts as friends, and at certain moment were to spring upon their unsuspecting victims and kill them instantly. The plot was fearfully successful in all the dwellings outside the little village of Jamestown. In one hour, on the 22nd of March, 1622, 347 men, women, and children were massacred in cold blood. The colony would have been annihilated, but for a Christian Indian who, just before the massacre commenced, gave warning to a friend in Jamestown. The Europeans rallied with their firearms and easily drove off their foes, and then commenced the unrelenting extermination of the Indians. An arrow can be thrown a few hundred feet, a musket ball more than as many yards. The Indians were consequently helpless. The English shot down both sexes, young and old, as mercilessly as if they had been wolves. They seized their houses, their land, their pleasant villages. The Indians were either slain or driven far away from the houses of their fathers into the remote wilderness. The colony now increased rapidly, and the cabins of the immigrants spread farther and farther over the unoccupied lands. These hardy adventurers seemed, providentially imbued, with the spirit of enterprise. Instead of clustering together for the pleasure of society and for mutual protection, they were ever pushing into the wild and unknown interior, rearing their cabins on the banks of distant streams, and establishing their silent homes in the wildest solitudes of the wilderness. In 1660, quite a number of immigrants moved directly south from Virginia to the River Chowan, in what is now South Carolina, where they established a settlement, which they called Albemarle. In 1670, a colony from England established itself at Charleston, South Carolina. Thus, gradually, the Atlantic coast became fringed with colonies, extending but a few leagues back into the country from the seashore, while the vast interior remained an unexplored wilderness. As the years rolled on, shiploads of immigrants arrived, new settlements were established, colonial states rose into being, and, though there were many sanguinary conflicts with the Indians, the Europeans were always, in the end, triumphant, and intelligence, wealth, and laws of civilization were rapidly extended along the Atlantic border of the New World. For many years there had been a gradual pressure of the colonists toward the West, steadily encroaching upon the apparently limitless wilderness. To us, it seems strange that they did not, for the sake of protection against the Indians, invariably go in military bands. But generally, this was not the case. The immigrants seem to have been inspired with a spirit of almost reckless indifference to danger. 
they apparently loved the solitude of the forest avoided neighbors who might interfere with their hunting and trapping and reared their humble cottages in the wildest ravines of the mountains and upon the smooth meadows which bordered the most solitary streams thus gradually the tide of immigration flowing through indian trails and along the forest-covered vines was approaching the base of the allegheny mountains but little was known of the character of the boundless realms beyond the ridges of this gigantic chain occasionally a wandering indian who had chased his game over those remote wilds would endeavor to draw upon the sand with a stick a map of the country showing the flow of the rivers the line of the mountains and the sweep of the open prairies the ohio was then called the wabash this magnificent and beautiful stream is formed by the confluence of the allegheny and the monongala rivers it was a long voyage a voyage of several hundred miles following the windings of the monongahela river from its rise among the mountains of west virginia till far away in the north it met the flood of the allegheny at the present site of the city of pittsburgh the voyage in a birch canoe required in figurative language of the indians two paddles two warriors and three moons the indians very correctly described the ohio or the wabash as but the tributary of a much more majestic stream far away in the west which pouring its flood through the impenetrable forest emptied itself they knew not where of the magnitude of this distant river the mississippi its source rise and termination they could give no intelligible account they endeavored to give some idea of the amount of game to be found in those remote realms by pointing to the leaves of the forest and the stars in the sky the settlers were deeply interested and often much excited by the glowing descriptions thus given them of a terrestrial eden where life would seem to be but one uninterrupted holiday occasionally an adventurous french or spanish trader would cross the towering mountains and penetrate the vales beyond they vied with the indians in their account of the salubrity of the climate the brilliance of the skies the grandeur of the forest the magnificence of the rivers the marvelous fertility of the soil and the abundance of game as early as the year nineteen sixty a trader from virginia by the name of doherty crossed the mountains visited the friendly cherokee nation within the present bounds of georgia and resided with the natives several years in the year seventeen thirty an enterprising and intelligent man from south carolina by the name of adair took quite an extensive tour through most of the villages of the cherokees and also visited several tribes south and west of them he wrote an exceedingly valuable and interesting account of his travels which was published in london influenced by these examples several traders in the year seventeen forty went from virginia to the country of the cherokees they carried on pack horses goods which the indians valued and which they exchanged for furs which were sold in europe at an enormous profit a hatchet a knife a trap a string of beads which could be bought for a very small sum in the atlantic towns when exhibited beyond the mountains to admiring groups in the wigwam of the indian could be exchanged for furs 
which were of almost priceless value in the metropolitan cities of the old world. This traffic was mutually advantageous, and so long as peaceful relations existed between the white man and the Indian, was prosecuted with great and ever-increasing vigor. The Indians thus obtained the steel trap, the keenly cutting axe, and the rifle, which he soon learned to use with unerring aim. He was thus able in a day to obtain more game than with his arrows and his clumsy snares he could secure in a month. This friendly intercourse was in all respects very desirable, and, but for the depravity of the white man, it might have continued uninterrupted for generations. But profligate and vagabond adventurers from the settlements defrauded the Indians, insulted their women, and often committed wanton murder. But it would seem that the majority of the traders were honest men. Ramsay, in his Annals of Tennessee, writes in reference to this traffic, other advantages resulted from it to the whites. They became thus acquainted with the great avenues leading through the hunting ground and to the occupied country of the neighboring tribes, an important circumstance in the condition of either peace or war. Further, the traders were an exact thermometer of the Pacific or hostile intention and feelings of the Indians with whom they traded. Generally, they were foreigners, most frequently Scotchmen, who had not long been in the country, or upon the frontier, who, having experienced none of the cruelties, depredations, or aggressions of the Indians, cherished none of the resentment and spirit of retaliation borne with and everywhere manifested by the American settler. Thus free from animosity against the aborigines, the trader was allowed to remain in the village where he traded, unmolested, even where its warriors were singing the war song or brandishing the war club, preparatory to an invasion or massacre of the whites. Timely warning was thus often given by a returning pac-man to a feeble and unsuspecting settlement of the perfidy and cruelty meditated against it. Game on the eastern side of the Alleghenies, hunted down alike by white men and Indians, soon became scarce. Adventurers combining the characters of traders and hunters rapidly multiplied. Many of the hunters among the white men far outstripped the Indians in skill and energy. Thus, some degree of jealousy was excited on the part of the savages. They saw how rapidly the game was disappearing and these thoughtful men began to be anxious for the future. With no love for agriculture, the destruction of the game was their ruin. As early as the year 1748, quite a party of gentlemen explorers, under the leadership of Dr. Thomas Walker of Virginia, crossed a range of the Allegheny Mountains, which the Indians called Warioto but to which Dr. Walker gave the name Cumberland, in honor of the Duke of Cumberland, who was then Prime Minister of England. Following along this chain in a southwesterly direction, in search of some pass or defile by which they could cross the cliffs, they came to the remarkable depression in the mountains, to which they gave the name of Cumberland Gap. On the western side of the range, 
they found a beautiful mountain stream rushing far away with ever-increasing volume into the unknown wilderness which the indians called Shawnee, but which dr walker's party baptized with the name of cumberland river these names have adhered to the localities upon which they were thus placed in seventeen fifty six a feeble attempt was made to establish a colony upon the tennessee river at a spot which was called london this was one hundred and fifty miles in advance of any white settlement eight years passed and by the ravages of war the little settlement went up in flame and smoke as the years rapidly came and went there were occasional bursts of the tempests of war again there would be a short lull and blessed peace would come with its prosperity and joy in the year seventeen sixty dr walker again passed over the clinch and powell's rivers on a tour of exploration into what is now kentucky the cherokees were then at peace with the whites and hunters from the back settlements began with safety to penetrate deeper and further into the wilderness of tennessee several of them chiefly from virginia hearing the abundance of game with which the woods were stocked and allured by the prospect of gain which might be drawn from this source formed themselves into a company composed of wallen Siegis, blevins cox and fifteen others and came into the valley since known as carter's valley in hawkins county tennessee they hunted eighteen months upon the clinch and powell rivers Wallens Creek and Wallens Ridge received their name from the leader of the company, as also did Wallens Station, which they erected in Lee County, Virginia. They penetrated as far north as Laurel Mountain in Kentucky, where they terminated their journey, having met with a body of Indians whom they supposed to be Shawnees. At the head of one of the companies that visited the West this year came Daniel Boone from the Yadkin in North Carolina and traveled with them as low as the place where abingdon now stands and there left them this is the first time the advent of daniel boone to the western wilds has been mentioned by historians or by the several biographers of that distinguished pioneer and hunter there is reason however to believe that he hunted upon watauga sometime earlier than this End of preface and chapter one